Welcome to Waterbrook Church located in Victoria, Minnesota. We're so glad you're here. This September we're starting a new sermon series focusing on the New Testament letter of Ephesians. Our new series is called One in Christ. Our hope and prayer is that over the next several months we would get a vision of the church as God's new creation, his masterpiece, which is just the beginning of what God intends to do throughout all eternity and throughout the entire heavens and on earth. Let's worship together. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Again, welcome to worship, and uh, it's been great to sing with you, and I trust that if you're visiting today that you just feel warmly welcome here. We're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We are moving into the book of Ephesians. We started this new study two weeks ago before Teen Challenge was here. Wasn't it good to have Teen Challenge here last week and just here? Uh, the stories of God's grace. And, and, and I, I do want you to already begin to understand as we study Ephesians, their story is our story. Their experience is our experience. If it was not for the grace of God, as we've just been singing, if God didn't come and get us, uh, we would not live. We would not have, who knows, uh, many of us would not even be alive today. Uh, except by the grace of God. And so we're moving into Ephesians, and uh, I want to just quickly review for you the structure of the letter or the, or the priorities of the letter of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul is writing uh, a, a letter that would have went to many churches, including the church at Ephesus, and he's announcing to them the strategic plan of God. And uh, in the letter, he says God has essentially three plans uh, that are being worked out. There is a cosmic plan, if you want to call it. And in that cosmic plan, which he talks about in chapter 1, 9, and 10, God has purposed in Jesus Christ to bring all things in heaven and on earth together. So there are angels that are in rebellion against God right now. There are demonic forces in this world doing uh, harm and causing evil and in rebellion. There's a day coming under Jesus Christ. Those, those demons have already been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. And there's a day coming when heaven and earth will be one. God, you see that in the book of Revelation. It ends with God making his dwelling amongst men. Isn't that going to be a glorious day? when there is no more cosmic rebellion against God. Secondly, in Ephesians, under that plan, it's also God's purpose to unite all of earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in the scriptures, that's the, the nations. So Paul is writing as a Jew uh, and ministering to Gentiles, and he's announcing that God in Jesus Christ has a purpose to bring Jews and Gentiles in the gospel together under Christ as one new people, or he says in Ephesians 2, one new man. And so that's why we're involved in missions, because God has planned to bring uh, diverse peoples from all the different uh, corners of the world, including Kuwait, as we were praying today, in hard-to-reach places, God has a purpose to bring the nations together under the headship of Christ. And then specifically in this section, in this letter of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the churches to say that God's purpose is to bring believers together, uh, unite believers together as one under the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so you can really look at Ephesians as having two sections if you want. Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 describes the, the glory of God in the gospel. We've just been singing of the grace of God by grace and grace alone. Paul will make up much about the grace of God in salvation in the first three chapters. This section that we're in today, beginning to be in, will uh, repeatedly say, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Chapter 2 will say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. No one can boast. So the first three chapters is Paul marveling in the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last three chapters is saying, if God has treated you this way, you ought to live this way towards one another. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have one gospel that we share in. And so God has purposed to bring us together as one. So as we come to this text of Scripture, we need to understand that it's really important to get the first three chapters in our hearts. And I would say it not just kind of like intellectual assent to theological truth. It needs to grip us. Paul is blown away by the grace of God. Uh, we're going to look at verses 3 to 14, and uh, it is one run-on sentence. Paul just runs off at the mouth here, or from the heart here, in this text of Scripture. And as he, as he runs, that's why I used uh, in the picture at the beginning, the horses running, because there's an old commentator, E.K. Simpson, who says this when Paul talks about the gospel and the grace of God. He says, as Paul muses on the fathomless fountain of grace, his soul is stirred to its depths, and we see him sally forth, if we may risk the simile, like some long-winded racehorse. I love that, because <laughs> I feel like a long-winded racehorse sometimes. <laughs> impatient of every intervening ba uh, barrier and careening onward at full speed beyond the middle of the chapter before he can check his impetuous pace and draw the bridle. <laughs> so, so um, you know, even as Ron was re reading some of your translations, the end of verse 4 has the words, in love. And so some people say, does in love go with verse 4 or does it go with verse 5? And the problem in the Greek is, it's all one sentence. And Paul's just going, going. But you and I are meant to hear what God is saying with the same sort of emotional grip that, that Paul has, the effect of the gospel of grace. That, that really what happens, uh, and, and the way you can see it structured here, is in Ephesians. Paul has a section really on the grace of God that goes from chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 10. And in verses 3 to 14, he's just letting the horse go. He takes his hand off the reins, and he says, this is the grace of God. This is the grace of God. This is the grace of God in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Then he catches his breath, you know, in verse 15. And from verse 15, really, to chapter 2, verse 10, what he does is he prays that we would really get it. So he describes it in 3 to 14, and then he prays that God would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might understand the riches of what he has. And so we're going to take a few weeks, because here's why. Uh, when the call of Scripture is for us to seek unity and be forgiving toward one another and uh, overcome wrongs and kind of work towards it, we are not good at that. And we will not be inclined to do that very consistently 
until we realize that's how God treated us. That God moved towards us when we were yet sinners. That God came running after us, seeking us. And so I really want to invite you today to ask God to take the glories of the gospel, which Paul really skates quickly over. I'm sorry, that's a Canadian metaphor. I don't know what the real word, but he goes quickly across the surface um, when, he, when he goes across that. And, and I want you to ask God, God, can I have something of the taste by the power of the Holy Spirit of how blown, Paul, blown away Paul is by the grace of God? God that came and got you so that I would extend it to, one, to others, that I'd be willing to do that. In counseling, and some of you, have, you know, if you've interacted at all with me in kind of pastoral counseling, we do this, uh, I kind of apply these two principles of self-differentiation, Marianne will probably be tired of this, but self-differentiation and self-regulation. And in self-differentiation, what we say to people, what we teach people is that it's really hard to uh, kind of control your emotions on the human level until you get anchored on the vertical level to who you are in God. And so the priority for us in, in the gospel is to have the gospel shape our identity. So let me just start here and say this. This is what's, this is what's happening in Ephesians. Self-differentiation is this. I get my sense of identity and emotional security from God in the gospel instead of anything that anyone does, says, or thinks about me. The gospel shapes my identity and security. So before I can relate to you, i got to get it right with God. Amen. And once I'm secure in God, it helps me at the emotional level, the fears, the anxieties, the rejection, the pain, all of that kind of stuff that keeps me from here. I can move in that direction when I know I'm right with the Lord. When I know the Lord is for me. And I get my identity there. So, so, you know, I do a lot of this in my own life. You know, Marianne will ask me sometimes, what's going on in your head? And because I'm a slow thinker, <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes I say there's nothing going on in my head right now. <laughs> but sometimes what I'm doing is I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to anchor myself in the Lord, in the gospel. Think through things. It takes me a long time just to kind of process that. But I do that so then I can function with my emotions properly. I can regulate my emotions. So self-regulation is my emotional and behavioral responses to others are shaped by who I am and what I have in Christ rather than the real or potential reactions or responses of others. And I say that because, you know, a lot of times our relational difficulties are imaginary or at least exaggerated. And if I don't get my, my emotions in check by the gospel, I'll have a very hard time responding to the emotional reactions and responses of the people around me. So my, the gospel not only gives me my identity and security, but it shapes my reactions and relationships. Let me give you an example. I got a very good quote from Paul Tripp. I just want you to listen to this because I found this helpful. Paul Tripp says, Perhaps during an argument with your husband, wife, or friend, securing affirmation as being right, and he puts in brackets for once, becomes more important to you. And then he says this line, You've lost your gospel mind. Maybe you find yourself doing whatever is necessary to get your job promotion. You've lost your gospel mind. 
Maybe you're willing to destroy your relationship with your neighbor over a boundary dispute. You've lost your gospel mind. Maybe you rip vengeance into your teenager because you're tired of being disrespected. You've lost your gospel mind. He says, perhaps uh, you have a lifestyle dream that's leading you into crushing debt. You've lost your gospel mind. Maybe you harbor a pattern of internet sexual sin. You've lost your gospel mind. Maybe you feel an overwhelming anxiety about what people think about you, how they might respond to you. You've lost your gospel mind. Maybe you're passive and complacent when it comes to your faith. You've lost your gospel mind. Maybe patterns of envy and bitterness have robbed you of your joy. You've lost your gospel mind. This is what he says. Because the radical, life-shaping, and hope-giving values of the gospel are nowhere reinforced in the surrounding culture, we live in constant need of fundamental gospel values clarification. We need this every week, don't we? We need this every day. We all need to be reminded again and again of what is truly valuable and what should be truly formative in life. And so that's why we're in Ephesians, and that's what we're going to be doing now. And so I want to stop, start by looking at verses 3 and 4, where Paul begins to let the horse go, uh, giving praise to the glory of God's grace. And so this is the first thing I want you to see in verse 3. Paul tells us of the amazing measure of God's grace. That's what he's doing. He's going to expand on the amazing measure of God's grace. God has given us, Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. See verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Do you hear that language, how expansive and how exhaustive it is? Every spiritual blessing. Now what Paul does is he begins by writing. He doesn't do this all the time. In fact, the only other place he does it, I believe, is in 2 Corinthians. He begins with a Jewish form of writing called a blessing, called a barakah. And in, in, a, in, in one of those blessings, what a Jewish person does, there's many psalms that do that, they acknowledge that God has blessed them. So when they give the blessing, when they say one of these blessings, they're not giving to God, but they're acknowledging that God has blessed them. And they're giving praise or acknowledgement to, to God for that. So there are many psalms and there's many blessings that are in uh, Jewish life. Um, for example, like when you have a dinner, you go out for dinner or you're sitting at, uh, at uh, the dinner table and you'll say to somebody, do you want to give the the blessing? Now there's a sense in which what you're doing when you take food is you're acknowledging that the food has come from the Lord. And in the Jewish world, they had kind of almost everything all day long they had a, a barakah for a blessing for. So listen, for example, if they were sitting down to eat bread, they had this barakah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. Or if they were to drink wine or have grape juice, they would say, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine. 
or if they're eating broccoli <laughs> or Brussels sprouts, they would say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the tree or the fruit of the ground or the varieties of nourishment. Basically, every part of the day had an opportunity. Now, Moses had warned them. God had warned them through Moses in the Torah that when they got into the promised land, they would be careful. When God blessed them, not to say what? We did this on our own. And he said, if you shift all these blessings and say we did it by our sacrifice, we did it by our hard work, we did it by the labor of our hands, he said, I'll remove those blessings. And I'll replace them with curses. Right? And so they would write out blessings for just about everything all day long. Now it's interesting, you, you heard me when I read some of those, when they would pray, blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe. What does Paul call God here? He does it here, he does it in Corinthians, and Peter does it when he gives his barakah at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the first thing I want you to see. The amazing thing about the blessing of God is that God comes to us as our Father. And for Paul, that's mind-blowing. That it's not just God the ruler of the universe. It's not just God the creator of the world, but the God who is sovereign, the God who created all things, the God who rules all things in Jesus has come to us as Abba Father, the Father who loves us and cares for us. God gives us, gives us himself in Christ. He becomes our Father and we become his children. Here's, here's the stunning reality. For all eternity, the Trinity, and Paul is very Trinitarian in this text. Even when he says every spiritual blessing, what he means, every blessing that comes by the Holy Spirit. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, from our Father, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in the Gospel, Jesus makes a big deal that he's on mission into this world so that we who come, become his disciples and believe in him might know the glory of God, which is his Father who has loved him from before the foundation of the world. This is unique to Christianity. This is the beautiful thing about being a child of God. God is your Father. But not only that, in, in, in the coming of Christ, God has come to bring that Trinitarian fatherly love that's been experienced through the Son and invite us to share in that overflow in His relationship with us. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to see how Paul prays about this and how it should at least in part land on you and me. Ephesians 3.14, for this reason I bow my knees before who? The Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now we know the Trinity is one, one God, but the functions like a family. We, we know that there is in this heavenly sense a family of God, but we are now through Christ made the family of God. He prays, he says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul begins with this remarkable realization that he is through Christ a child of God. That he is loved with fatherly, eternal, fatherly love. And he says, this is his prayer in the first three chapters. That's why he's writing what he's... By the time you get to the end of chapter 3, I hope by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit will let you know just how much you are loved. Friends, do you understand anything of that today? That you are loved. I'll tell you this, you hardly understand it. I hardly understand it. We have but tasted of it. But this is where it begins. He loved us. Before we ever loved him, he loved us. He set his love on us in Christ and he held nothing back. Our Christian faith is fundamentally given birth or formed from God's fatherly love towards us. One of my favorite writers on the Trinity is Michael Reeves, especially his little book, Delighting in the Trinity. Michael Reeves, when he writes uh, uh, about God as Father, he says this, when I was a child, I used to have almost a physical reaction to the word God. To me, it was a sharp-edged word that cut through all others. When it was spoken, I felt both searched and unsettled. Now, I knew enough to understand why the uttering of that word should make me feel searched. God, I realized, was high and holy, and I was not. Just the mention of God this morning, does it search you? Should. Searches all of us. But why was I unsettled? He said, that question would pester me for years. It wasn't merely that God transcended me. It wasn't only his dazzling perfection. I had only the dimmest appreciation of those realities. What I couldn't quite express at the time was that God in his glory was not then beautiful to me. His holiness troubled me, not just because it exposed me, but because I did not see him as good. So when he heard of God, he said, I I know you're holy, but I don't see you as good as you are. And then he said, then I met Athanasius. And so he talks about the early church father, Athanasius. And he said, while other writers struck me as dull, he had a twinkle in his eye and a mind that saw with clarity uh, things that others had not seen. It was as if he lived in some sunny upland, free of the fog that that clouds more mundane intellects. So here's this happy theologian. Athanasius. And he thought, he knows something I don't know. This is what he writes. He says, one sentence of Athanasius tugged at me. And this is the sentence. It is more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate. And uh, what he means by that, (laughs) Ron, your mind just got blown. (laughs) Uh, What he means by that is this is what a lot of people do. That's what you do in in, um, Alcoholics Anonymous and so on. You know God exists, so you call him a higher power. You see him in creation, right? You go, some people say, I don't have to go to church to worship. I can go in my canoe. 
But he says, if you go out into nature and you see God as mighty and glorious and powerful, and all those things are true, he says, you won't know him as Father. He says, you will only know him as Father when you look in the eyes of the Son. Amen. When you see Jesus coming. And he says, it would be better to see the truth of God's forgiving grace in the eyes of the Son, in the face of the Son, than to see all of his glory in creation and never come to know him as Father. And that's what we need. That's what you and I long for. That's what Paul is talking about, that it comes out of fatherly love. Here's the other thing. As a father, our God is incredibly generous, incredibly generous. He has given us, go back to chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing every spiritual blessing. Now, God has given us many blessings. He's given us bread, a roof over our heads. He's giving us wine, all of those things we talked about in the Jewish barakas. But He hasn't just given us bread. He's giving us living bread. He hasn't just given us water. He's given us living water. He hasn't just given us wine. He's given us His Son's shed blood to pay for all our sins. C.S. Lewis writes, look for Christ and you will find him, but when you find him, you'll find everything else thrown in. You and I are to understand here that what God has done for us in Christ is poured out on on us every blessing that our hearts long for. Those things that he couldn't know, but just by knowing God, holy, every spiritual blessing. And he's going to begin to enumerate them. You you are going to discover that one of the spiritual blessings is your adoption. You don't think anybody loves you? God loves you, and he's made you his own, and he won't let you go. Redemption he's going to talk about. What do you have in redemption? You feel guilty before a holy God. He has washed away your sins and put them all on Jesus. Every spiritual blessing has been given to you. He's given you the Holy Spirit to seal you as his own. You think, boy, I'm a wobbling Christian. I've gone off the rails so many times. It's not you that's holding on to him. It's him that's holding on to you. He's given you an inheritance that will not be taken away because you never earned it in the first place. He gave it to you. Listen to Paul Tripp. The most valuable thing in life is not an experience you will have. The most valuable thing in life is not something you'll get from the people in your life. The most valuable thing in life is the eternal gift of divine grace. My eternal forgiveness, my eternal acceptance into the family of God, the guaranteed destiny that is mine as a child of God is all secured for me by the righteous life the substitutionary death, and the life-giving resurrection of Jesus. The most valuable thing in all my life is union with Christ. By grace, he is in me, and I am in him. Just think about that. Isn't it amazing? amazing grace he's your father and he didn't spare from from my youth that's my been my favorite verse romans 8 32 for if god did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all 
how will he not along with us, with him, freely give us every good gift, everything we need, right? Is God stingy? No, he knows what you need. Uh, Friends, he may not give you bread all the time. He may not give you wine in every season. But he'll always give you the bread of life, the spirit of God, the strength to endure. One day he'll give it to us all when he makes all things new. But everything that your heart longs for, which makes it hard to self-differentiate and hard to self-regulate, God helps you with all this because he gives you everything you need and secures you in his son. Is that not amazing? Amazing grace. Now this is what Paul does in verse 4. He takes it a step further and he basically says not only just the measure of grace, God's grace that should blow you away, but the moment of God's grace. When did he give it to you? When did this all originate? Where did it come from? Listen to verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him. This is the other amazing thing. And this is why it's written this way. You and I need to stop and realize it wasn't when we did something. It wasn't because God saw us. I want to warn you about this because one of the arguments people have when they talk about God choosing us in Christ is they say, well, God looked down through the time framework and he saw us going, pick me, pick me, pick me, and therefore God chose me. Friends, that would undermine everything Paul's saying here. He did not choose us because we chose him. He chose us so that we would choose him. This is his argument. I'm not saying you can get your head wrapped around it. I'm not even going to try to define it clearly here, but I'm going to tell you this. What Paul is saying here is it's all of grace. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's who gets the glory here. So listen carefully what he said. I want to point out a couple things. The first thing is, what he says here is God chose us on the merits of Christ and not because of anything in us. Notice verse 4 says, he chose us in him. He will say in him over and over again. He will talk about union with Christ all the way through it. I forget how many times it happens. I think he mentions Christ 15 times in the first 14 verses. So what are we supposed to get? This is not about us. This is not to the praise of the glory of Kevin Dibley. If it wasn't for Jesus, friends, we would have no hope. God put us in Christ in his heart before we ever chose Christ. Listen to R.C. Sproul. He says, notice when the New Testament speaks of election and predestination, it always speaks of our being elect or chosen in the beloved in Christ. Ultimately, the New Testament tells us that people are chosen for salvation so that God can bestow his glory, love, and affection uh, and his affection on God the Son. Ultimately, we are redeemed not because of our worthiness, but because of the worthiness of Christ. Now, you don't have to get your head around that, but let me just tell you this, that's a big relief. Because right now, God looks at you through the worthiness of Jesus, not the worthiness of you. No matter what today was like, no matter what life was like, that's what he's saying. God is gracious to me in order to reward the one who does deserve the reward, his only begotten son. So you remember we sing that old song, why, why should I gain that by his reward? I cannot give an answer. 
And that line always hits me. Why am I a child of God? I'll tell you this, there'll be no boasting except in Jesus. What he did, the son taking on the flesh, dying in our place. All these blessings are come through Christ. And so that's the motivation when we get to loving one another. Why should I love you? Not because I'm better than you, not because I did something, not because you did something. Jesus is worthy. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Did Christ wait till you were cleaned up before he came and got you? Thank God it's mercy. Thank God it's Jesus. Secondly in this text, God chose us long before the world was made. Well, I'm not going to be able to explain it all. But I at least can say this. The purpose of this text is to remind us that it is not, our salvation is not conditioned on anything God saw in us, but because he willed to save us. Mercy, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Listen to Dr. Benjamin Merkel from Southern Seminary. He says, God's choice and election occurred before time and creation, emphasizing that his choice was based on God's sovereign purpose, not human merits. Thus, the appropriate response is to praise God for his blessing. You don't have to, you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to argue anything, but you do need to praise God. Right, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And, you know, and I let, you know, one of my f favorite guys, one of Mary Ann's favorite guys, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to be in England, and he was, he was actually a physical, uh, a medical doctor, and he would get up to pray, uh, preach, and, and this is how he talked about how this affected his life personally. He said, were I to believe that my future is dependent on myself and my decisions, I would tremble with fear. But I thank God that I know that I'm in his hand. And that he who has begun a good work in me will go on with the work. In spite of myself and what I was and am, the Lord will not let me go. He will not let his purpose forego. It's because I know that before time began, before the foundation of the world, he looked at me and saw me and selected me and in his mind gave me to Christ. It's because I know that, that with the Apostle Paul, I'm able to say that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's why it matters. My sense of security and my joy depend upon it. Although my understanding does not determine my salvation, it does determine the experience of the joy of my salvation and the sense of security and certainty. And I hope that's what it does for you because that's why it's written. It's written so that you would be on that horse with Paul going, wow, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. He did this for me. He did this for me. He came for me. He sought me. He bought me. He did everything. And if he said he would do it, he'll do it. Because I am as wobbly. We saying it, you know, we said it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. My joy is not based on Kevin Dibley's performance, but on God's unfailing purpose in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? That's why John, uh, Jesus says in John 15, it's God who's it. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he may give it to you. The disciples, 
you know, they, what did they do? They did this thing like, should you be the leader? Should I be the leader? Who's going to be great in the kingdom? They got it all backwards. Because by the end of it, if, if that was based on, they'd all be quitting. Or they'd all be dangerous. But what Jesus was teaching them, it wasn't because you chose me. It's because I chose you. And then he asked the question, well, why did God choose anybody? And Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory and grace. Right? To him alone be the glory. Spurgeon said this, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain if God hadn't chose me, I would have never chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born because he certainly wouldn't have chosen me afterwards. You know that song, you must have been a beautiful baby? No. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find why he would have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept this great biblical doctrine to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let me add just one more thing in this text. He chose you to be holy and blameless. Paul's going to unpack this, but I'll tell you this. He chose you to be holy and blameless because you're not. He sent his son because you're not. If you were, he wouldn't have to choose you for it. But the argument here in the first three chapters, it's by grace. He loved you. He sent his son. The son died for you and purchased you and came and got you. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Not because you're holy. Why is Jesus bleeding on the tree? Because you and I are not holy and blameless. There are none that are righteous. No, not one. That's Paul's testimony. You say, well, I was seeking for God. Paul says, no, no, no. There are none that are righteous. There are none that seek after God. And just so you know, he's not, quote, he's not just coming up with that in Paul's head. He's quoting Isaiah. Oh, man, we, the story would have been over a long time ago if it depended on will. That's why John says that he gave us the right to be called the children of God, not born of the flesh and not born of the human will, but born of God. This is miraculous. It's marvelous, but it's got to shape our lives. This is very practical doctrine. Because when we look at each other and say we're going to move towards each other, often we say, well, I will when you will. And then God says, wait a second here. What if I played that game? And God said, I came for you when you were filthy abandoned he'll say in chapter 2 you were dead in trespasses and sins you were dominated by evil forces you weren't waving pick me you were drowned on the bottom of the ocean there were no vital signs I came and got you I raised you from the dead how's that help me well at the very least it just makes me want to cry Just wants, it just makes me want to say with 
Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. Gabe said we're seated at the table. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, looks with his lame legs at David and says, what am I, a dead dog, doing eating at the king's table? Isn't that your story? Isn't that my story? My dear friends, that Ephesians begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in him. I did a very bad job of talking about a very good God. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, I bow and I thank you and I I'm amazed at your grace. Holy Spirit, would you give us a sense of wonder? Especially as we come to take communion. Would it stagger us, dear God, that all the, all the, all the initiative comes from you. All the love starts with you. All the direction is coming from you. All the cost was borne by you. Leaves us speechless. But help us, dear God, to rest in it. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us, dear God, to get ourselves anchored in this so when we go through all the uncertainty of life, that when we get that, when Paul Tripp says, I've lost my gospel mind, help me get my gospel mind back. I belong to you. Not by works, but by grace. So we ask, dear God, that you take this truth and begin to do a work in us. Begin it. It's a long work, but be, be gracious, dear God for your namesake. To the praise of the glory of your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.